Well, you and I were just talking about the uh, beauty of Montana, Mr. Brando, and uh, you've not been to either South Dakota nor Montana, uh, but 48 other states. But uh, these two you've not made it to. How did you end up in North Dakota before you ended up in Montana? Uh, a game. I want to say it was a North Dakota State game years ago. <laughs> you know, yep. and uh, made it into Idaho at Pocatello, even. You know, not not uh, uh, Boise is an easy one. You know, people are, that's that's Treasure Island of, of Idaho, unlike mm-hmm. any other part of that state. But you get to places like uh, Moscow and and, uh, and Pocatello. That old that old saying when you get off the plane is not that's not the end of the uh, the earth, but it's you can see it from there. You know, I almost get that feeling. But uh, yeah, in my travels, especially early in my career, I was doing a lot of um, back in those days. They would have called it Division One AA. Now it would be FCS games, and and a couple and I did the championship games, which were played in places like the, the Potato Dome in Pocatello or the Tacoma Dome, you know, outside Tacoma, Washington. Um, so the, when, you're, when you're doing a lot of college athletics and you've been doing it for four decades, the remote locations are something that becomes the norm, uh, especially when you're doing, you know, some of the lower-level schools, which, uh, by the way, I valued all of that, and I, and I really uh, have an affection still do have an affection for watching those games, you know, with uh, Mountain Union and um, uh, and uh, Wisconsin Whitewater get together for their annual Division Three National Championship. <laughs> I, I get a kid out of it, you know, because I remember doing games of, uh, like that. And I've said this many times to broadcasters, what level of play you get to do really doesn't matter as long as the passion is there and you know, when you do Division Three, Division Two, or NAIA, or, or um, uh, FCS games, football or basketball, you can tell how the fans really care, the kids care. A lot of times you'll hear from parents and or uh, players that you covered 25, 30 years later, and they'll talk about having an old VHS tape of your telecast <laughs> and the joy it brings them on a bad day when they stick it in after they've converted it to DVD now, you know. (laughs) But but that's that's one of the great things about what we do. Tim Brando joining us here, Jason Walker, show on the Mike Miller State Farm Hotline. So what was your early days like uh, with travel? Because it's not luxurious like it is now, I'm sure, Uh, which, you know, there's a lot of bus trips that I I reckon were back in the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, But I will say... Prior to nine one one, it was a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have nearly as many regional jets that were operating. You really had more big jets flying into uh, smaller locations. Everything changed with air travel for the worst after nine one one. After the towers went down, um, you know, the first the first airline bailout. And and I'll be interested to see. It's a great question because I'll be interested to see. Uh, we don't know what the new norm is going to be in the world after COVID-19. We really don't. I suspect there'll be a lot of changes, alterations to not just how we get from one place to another, but how we actually physically uh, broadcast the games. Um, you know, it's no secret that uh, sports television is hemorrhaging from revenues lost. And uh, once the games are either 
played or, or what form they're going to be played. Once it's announced that we're going to be working, and I'm still optimistic that we will, it'll be interesting to see if that changes our boss's viewpoints on how to schedule their announcers, you know, the kind of event that you get. I suspect that one of the things they may be looking at to save money is giving announcers games that would be closer to their home so that they maybe could, uh, you know, take a car service or, or even drive themselves from one place to, you know, from the game to their homes. Um, and we live in various places around the country. I live in Louisiana. I live in my hometown of Shreveport. I have for 30 years, which is great if I'm doing certain games, like, for instance, to the Big 12, I can drive to Fort Worth, to TCU. I can drive to Waco for Baylor, drive to Oklahoma and Norman or Oklahoma State, Stillwater. Mm-hmm. Guys like me uh, that were raised in the South, if you can get there within nine hours, it's you'd really rather drive <laughs> in today's <laughs> environment to just you know stay away from the NTSA and to stay away from uh, dealing with uh, air, airports. You know, um, sure. I've got enough miles, and and frankly, I don't really need to use them, nor do I want to use them. Someone says, "Well, you could take all those free miles and fly somewhere." The last thing a sportscaster wants to do with his free time is go to an airport. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Uh, Tim Brando joining us here, Jason Walker Show. Uh, I was going to go in chronological order here, but you you mentioned this season with COVID-19. We'll just knock it out of the way. You're optimistic the season will happen. Will it start on time? Boy, I don't know. I think anybody that tells you that it will or that they or it won't, anyone that speaks in absolutes now about this situation is lying to you or they're lying to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed earlier today that the big 10 commissioner was on CNBC and I really didn't hear anything riveting or new from him, but I was impressed by him in terms of all the contingencies. Uh, you could tell he was um, speaking from hands-on experience about what his, days are like in terms of uh, daily conference calls with his peers within his conference and talking with coaches as well as uh, athletic directors on a daily basis. You, you could really see that and hear that they are going to do everything in their power to play, and they need to. I mean, the, the economic impact of not having college football would be devastating for not just that sport, but for all the sports, the non-revenue producing sports, particularly and Title IX sports, uh, women's sports, especially. So I do believe that they're going to exhaust every one of those contingencies to find a way to play. Uh, but it may look different, and it may it may um, it may sound a little bit different, and it um, it very easily could be a little late. And by the way, if it is late by say a month. If we started college football the first weekend in October instead of the first weekend in September, we would end uh, around Christmas time. The NFL is still playing regular season games. And I've always thought that um, that the college football season ended too quickly. The fact that it's over really feels like it's over at Thanksgiving is just too quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I sort of think we could move everything back. I don't think a basketball game, a college basketball game, uh, needs to be played certainly until after Thanksgiving. Now they're playing in early November, as you know. Yep. Uh, I think they, you know, they, they could easily make that a one semester sport if they wanted, um, and, and started 
after the first of the year. And they may have to do that this year. You know, they may learn some things based on what's forced upon them this year that perhaps could change. And college baseball, in my mind, could, could be moved back a little bit. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I, I, I am hopeful uh, that we will see college football in some form. But, uh, Jason, I do think that there's a very good chance that not all the institutions within the conferences may want to participate. Uh, particularly in, in, out west, you're, you're seeing and hearing one thing in, in Washington State where, you know, they were one of the first ones hit, but yet uh, they reached their crest and, uh, and, and their cases started coming down a lot sooner because of uh, the way they mitigated, which they are to be congratulated for. Uh, California is a different story, mm-hmm. and especially with the political leadership that they have, uh, it may be very difficult for either the uh, Los Angeles schools to, to participate. So if that's the case, uh, I, I still believe the Pac-12, uh, the rest of their member institutions understand the economics. They're going to want to play, and whether that means teams that choose not to play have to forfeit their games, that's that's for them to determine. I don't know. You know how each conference will have to look at that individually, but uh, I, I do see a season. Uh, uh, it, it could be a little bit late, might even be truncated. Although I don't think they want to do that. I think the non-conference games, you know, getting in a full twelve weeks of, of college football matters to these schools. And uh, I don't think the Power Five wants to throw uh, the Group of Five under the bus. They need the Group of Five. They need them to fill out their schedules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a very good chance that uh, we'll play. But, gosh, to make any predictions about when or how uh, we get through this, God, God only knows. I mean, I have no way of, of understanding. And it is a uh, – every day we're learning something new, um, positively or negatively. And, and uh, you know, as we get closer to Election Day, that's the other thing. Um, politics starts creeping into this. and. Man, oh, man, that's as unpredictable as any factor (laughs) you could possibly imagine. Tim Brando, our guest here, Jason Walker Show, Fox Sports uh, College and uh, basketball announcer. Uh, You mentioned California, and just with, uh, you know, the Big Sky Conference, we were talking about Montana, Montana State on the FCS level. There's three Big Sky football schools in Cal Poly, Sacramento State, and UC Davis in California. If California's not open, how do they play Montana or Montana State or some of these other schools uh, in states that are open? You look at uh, Long Island. Is Montana State's first game September 5th in Bozeman? Well, Long Island's pretty much in the thick of things out there in, in the Northeast with COVID-19. I just don't yeah. know if if how a season would look if some of these teams can't play or travel, like you said. Well, that's one of the reasons I think it's important for the administrators out there. And I'm sure I don't know your, your athletic directors at two schools in Montana, but if I'm, if I'm in charge of, uh, uh, FCS schools or I'm in charge of even, uh, group of five schools within the FBS and I'm an athletic director and president, I'm looking at a lot of different alternatives from a scheduling standpoint. If I'm dealing with a team, that it has to travel from a uh, a hot spot of of the of the coronavirus. Um, I'm looking at potential teams that could step in and possibly uh, replace them. You know, you need 
those would be sort of the contingencies, I think, that uh, those schools would have to be thinking about. Uh, because it's and, – and, oh, by the way, that's another factor, too. Uh, I'm sure they want to protect wherever they may, they may be playing in terms of the Power 5 schools, if they have them on their schedules, as money games. Right. You know, and, and those money games that could be worth up, up to seven figures in the past may only be worth half that now because so much of that is tied to the gate uh, of the team in question that they could be playing. That still is a lot of money. In, in certain cases, it might be upwards of a fourth or a fifth of your annual athletic budget. Yep. I mean, I, I've talked to a number of commissioners and, and athletic directors in the last few weeks, and um, I hear the same tune. Now, none of them want to speak publicly. They'll, they'll tell you to please keep it uh, between us. But they're all essentially saying the same thing. Yep. Uh, we need to play. We're looking at every possible option. Everything's on the table. Uh, for the most part, it appears the if you want to look for a date that would be considered, uh, you know, a drop-dead date, the, the Big Ten Commissioner said it today, the, the next six to eight weeks are vital. Uh, and that period would get us to right around July 15th. So I, I think that knowing something by the end of June uh, is going to be important. And I think knowing by this time next month, let's say by early June, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have an understanding of how many more schools are opened. I think that's, that will trigger the athletic departments even more, Jason, when we start hearing, well, our schools are open. Our schools are open. There were some that were announced today. Yep. Um, Tennessee, South Carolina, a lot of the schools in the south uh, where I reside are beginning to announce. Purdue has mentioned that they're going to open. I think Oregon just a few days ago said they were going to open. So uh, a substantial number of schools in different parts of the country have announced that they're opening. And I, I think that for optics sake, they need to be able to say that, you know, that the whole notion of, uh, uh, of schools being closed and games being played just does not look or feel good to anybody. Is there a chance that say the sec or the ACC or, you know, the big boys could hold their own seasons without having non-conference games or, you know, schedule like, uh, you know, Alabama Monroe or, you know, a smaller team like in Alabama just to fill out a 10-game schedule and go with a nine-game conference schedule. Is there a chance for that, or is, is college football too much money that we have to have it as close to normal as possible? I think it's got to be close to the 12-game schedule for the, for the, for the gate. I mean, they, they require, and that's one of the reasons why, the NCAA, uh, you know, determined a few years ago that they would extend the season and allow for one extra game. The big kahunas wanted that seventh home game. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the big boys and, uh, you know, Clemson, Florida State and the ACC, Ohio State, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, teams like that in the Big Ten and certainly LSU, Alabama, Georgia, Auburn. These teams historically have seven home games. Well, you're not going to get seven home games by just playing in your conference. You've got to play those non-conference games to get, you know, that, that number where you need it to be. And the economic impact for a college football weekend in the cities where those colleges are located is unbelievable. Yep. I mean, it's in the 30, 35 to 40 million dollar area of economic impact in cities like Baton Rouge and, uh, Auburn, Alabama, Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. Um, 
and the same would be true in and around the Clemson Greenville areas uh, in South Carolina and certainly Tallahassee. So, you know, without having that, uh, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. Could you, you know, play just your conference games? I suppose you could, but you'd be taking a physical licking by not having those non-conference games. And as I said, I believe they want to protect the interests of the smaller schools that need those non-conference games uh, for, for money's sake. You know, it, where I went to school, for instance, uh, Louisiana Monroe, formerly Northeast Louisiana University, their athletic budget, it may be, if it's not at the very bottom, it's close to the bottom of Division One college football, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 15 to 17, a shot, shot at 20 million a year, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you took college football away and those dates that they play teams like an Auburn, a Kansas State or an Iowa State or a uh, Georgia or Arkansas away from them, uh, they would be dropping sports left and right. So I think that the administrators of all the schools want to protect um, their brethren at the, le- at the lower levels as best they can. Tim Brando, our guest here, Jason Walker Show. It's just crazy to me that the college landscape, I think, will change drastically if there's no football at all, obviously, but especially if there's some, you know, just a half a season, because like you said, we're going to have to start dropping sports. And some schools eventually, I think, on the smaller level would just end up closing altogether financially. There's just no way a lot of these can make it. And it'll be interesting to, to follow. Uh, one final question on the COVID-19, Tim. Would, would, sure. would, could you see yourself, and we've, we've seen this during Olympics or, or you know, the, the World Cups type stuff, could you see yourself broadcasting a game from uh, your home while you watch it on TV? I mean, that's a or a studio somewhere not in the city that the game's being played. Pulling a Carl Ravitch doing Korean baseball—is that what you're saying? <laughs> Something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you never say never in our business, right? Um, I mean, you really don't. You never say never in our business, and. You know, the show does have to go on, uh, depending upon, and I'm sure we're all going to have to adjust and adapt. You know, I meet uh, every Thursday night with our crew. For the last three years, I've had the same producer, director. Of course, Spencer Tillman and I have been together. It will be our 22nd year, I think, of the last 23. We were only uh, without one another. The first year I went to Fox, and he remained at CBS, and then he joined me when his contract ended. So I've been really fortunate and blessed to have the consistent crew with me. And we meet every week and do a Zoom chat on Thursday nights. And we were talking about this. You know, there's a lot to be determined on the broadcast end. As an example, uh, television trucks were that, that go with their satellites to, to do the games are constructed in a way where producers and directors are right on top of each other. You know, their, their elbows are touching as they're doing their job. Right in most of those trucks and graphics operators and the associate directors are on the second deck and they're, they're enclosed, um, situation. I mean, they're packed like sardines in these trucks, tape machines and tape, uh, uh, tape recorders that are running with the help of people, you know, multiple people side by side. They'll have to take a long look at, um, at how they want to reconstruct some of those so that there'll be at least, better social distancing for those people in the workplace. And even in the booth where we're located, 
um, we may have to be a little further apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we how do we pull that off? You know, you got a spotter, you got a statistician up there as well. Now, there's all kinds of questions that we're all asking of ourselves right now, and uh, I'm sure my bosses. I've I've not spoken to them. The last thing they want to hear from. Uh, I'm sure in May is from one of their announcers, you know, <laughs> got a few more things to worry about. Um, but I know they're talking to the people that they have to talk to logistically from a technical point of view about what they can do. Uh, I would assume that there, there may be a few more games that are done from a remote standpoint. And when I say that, I mean, you might have the, the broadcasters of the game in the booth, but the production uh, of the actual event uh, would not be done from a truck on site. It could be done from a studio, which uh, Fox, I know, has some in Charlotte. So does ESPN. Uh, Fox also has a remote unit that they can operate up out of Los Angeles. They've done that with soccer for years, you know, with the World Cup, right. uh, with a so-called World Feed. I think they're also doing it this week, this very week, with uh, uh, the, the NASCAR event that's coming up, where you know, the, the talent is actually going to be in a studio in Charlotte, but the producer director might be on site and it's, it's really unique the way they're going about it. And maybe from a logistic standpoint, they'll figure some things out with, uh, with that little test that's in front of them. But, uh, we have seen in recent years, a lot of basketball games, uh, a lot of women's sports on all the networks, especially, the networks that have such inventory like Fox and FS1 and ESPN and, and, uh, all of their different platforms, games that are done with, um, uh, no production trucks. And in some cases having the announcers, you know, in a soundproof booth, uh, at a, at a, a location somewhere besides the game where the game is located. Uh, and that, my, my guess is to save, to save, Money, they they may do the same, or may do even more of that, uh, potentially. Uh, but I hope sincerely, just from a selfish point of view, and for the viewer's sake, uh, that that we don't do it everywhere. Uh, that we do it in select locations with select games, because there's nothing like being there. Right. Yeah. Broadcasting a live event and being in the location where the game is being played, to me, is vital to bringing the viewers exactly the story that they want to hear. Um, and, and, uh, and I think most sophisticated fans will know if they're getting the full treatment or not the full treatment. So, uh, as I said, selfishly, I certainly hope that we don't do it too much, but the, the, you raise a great point given the circumstances and the financial constraints that we all find ourselves in right now, we could see more of that this year. Absolutely. Tim Brando, our guest here, Jason Walker show. I got to ask you this because I'm very intrigued as a, as a younger announcer who's now getting up there in age, but who were some of your idols growing up? Because I, you know, grew up listening to, to guys like you or Vern Lundquist, who's so good. Keith Jackson, um, as play-by-play announcers, people always tease me. I don't watch a game for the game. I watch to listen to the announcers and how to get better myself. So who did you listen to growing up or watch? Oh, my hero was Kurt Gowdy, and oh. I got to know him uh, very, very well. The lonesome boy from Laramie, the Hall of <laughs> Famer from Wyoming. Uh, and I also got to know him, and he mentored me, uh, I'm proud to say. Uh, we became very, very close friends. 
I talk to him, gosh, five or six times a year. Uh, and I'm talking from my earliest stages. I, I was working at a local radio station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, 40 years ago in 1979 and 80. And, uh, the owner of the station who also ran the station, uh, was uh, a really gregarious outgoing gentleman who was, uh, had, had gone to Hollywood, uh, a big, uh, theatrical guy. And, um, he saw something in me and loved, uh, uh, you know, my passion for sports. And he allowed me to have my, the first ever nightly sports talk show in Baton Rouge, which was something I really wanted. And I also, uh, was able to sell him on the idea of doing high school football games every Friday. Um, so, you know, I'm 22, 23 years old at the time. And, uh, he said, kid, if you, if you can sell it, we'll put it on. I said, well, that's not a problem. <laughs> you know, so I went out there and, and, and did it. And I, I, I had, I had my cassette tapes and he knew that I had lofty goals. And, uh, he actually took cassette tapes of mine. He was a part of an independent group. You know, back in those days, we didn't have, uh, you know, clear channel right. or, or other conglomerates like clear channel, cumulus and such owning all the stations you know, or an iHeart radio type of thing. It wasn't like that. The, the radio in those days, it largely was home owned. You know, we used to call them mom and pop operations. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, Mr. Earl owned this, uh, AM station. It was, uh, the hottest, uh, AM top 40 station there. And he wanted to turn it into, um, uh, news talk and sports. And I was, uh, just there at the right time to be able to do that. I did a shift for three hours uh, in the afternoons that was uh, basically in the beginning spinning records and being a disc jockey and would later become a, a talk show format in the afternoons. But at night, after I got done with my three-hour shift, I did a nightly sports talk show, which was something that I sold and I put together. And I also sold even on having a high school football game of the week. Uh, an AM station that was probably about, uh, uh, I think we were shooting out about 50, no, maybe 10,000 watts during the day, went down to 1,000 watts at night, you know, when the sun went down. Oh, yeah, night power. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anything that we did at night, he, he thought was found money, which it was. And uh, and I produced it, broadcasted it, and and won a state award over some university broadcasts of LSU, Tulane, Louisiana Tech, uh, won the state Louisiana Association of Broadcasters Best Play-by-Play Award. This was in 1980, and I, I was so thrilled. And he said, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to play. I want to take your tape, uh, to my, my owner's meeting. We have an independent ownership group that meets in West Palm Beach and West Palm, Kurt owned a number of stations and he had them in Massachusetts. He had them in Wyoming. Uh, and he had him in, um, in Florida, West Palm, where he lived. And he took my tapes and played them for Mr. Gowdy. And, wow. and, and, uh, in 1982, as luck would have it, I had uh, moved on to New Orleans. I was doing a nightly talk show on WGSO in New Orleans. And, uh, and, uh, Kurt was still doing the old Sunday show called The American Sportsman on ABC. But he was coming into New Orleans to do the Final Four with Kaywood Ledford, the legendary Kentucky play-by-play announcer, the one that Jordan won at the buzzer in 1982 at the Dome. Uh, and the people from 
but we were we were an affiliate of ABC Radio, and ABC called our station and asked if if we'd be interested in having Kurt Gowdy as a guest on our show. Oh. And I'm like, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> and uh, I said, you bet. You bring him over. And he and he came in and he right away knew me because my my old boss was a friend of his, Bob Earl. He said, "Kid, I've heard your stuff. You're good." And so that got me off to a great start. And by the end of the day, I told him I'd named my little brother. I have a little brother, Kurt, who sadly passed away back in early March, 52 years old, and a great journalist uh, he was. And he was living in Hong Kong, uh, and he died. He had cancer and uh, and couldn't make it. But he was only 11 years old at this time. And I was telling Mr. Gowdy, hey, I named, we have a Catholic family. And it was an oh, by the way, child. And my mom and dad said, hey, if it's a girl, my big sister got to name the baby. And if it was a little boy, I got to name the baby. So I was, I was a 11 year, you know, at that time I would have been about 12 years old when, when Kurt was born. And I was telling Mr. Gowdy about this. And I, he, I think he thought I was conning. You know, that was really <laughs> like, yeah, this can't be real. You're telling me you named your little brother after me. I said, sir, if you don't mind, I'd really love this. Uh, would you mind talking to your namesake? I'm, I'm going to get him on the phone. With you. Oh, man. Well, he teared up. Uh, Mr. Gowdy teared up when I told him this, and I got him on the phone with my little brother. My little brother thought it was cool, too, really did. And when we he got off the phone, he turned to me, and we'd already done the, the hour-long interview. And he said, kid, he said, tomorrow, which was Saturday. This was on a Friday. He said, tomorrow morning, I want you to come to the Hyde Regency. I'm taking you to breakfast. Mm. Now, you're going to have to come early because I've got to be over at the arena for the first semifinal game. We had about a three-and-a-half-hour breakfast at the Hyatt Regency, wow. uh, Jason. I'll never forget. I will never forget. And we established a long, long relationship from from that time on until the time he passed away. And all the years that I started going to the Final Fours, which was in that period, uh, he was hosting and emceeing a lot of, uh, champions dinners at the for the NABC at the Final Fours because he was a Hall of Famer himself as a player, and we would always have breakfast on the Saturday morning oh. of the semifinals. We did that for about gosh twelve or thirteen straight years uh, until he got too old to to make the trip. So that was a true hero uh, for me, Man. and uh, several others I looked up to. Uh, Love Jack Buck, uh, Ray Scott. Um, Jim Simpson, who worked with Kurt, I later worked with in my earliest days at ESPN, were all guys that were truly mentors and, and uh, very helpful to me in my career. I always thought the world of them. Lindsey Nelson was a great one oh, yeah. uh, who was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I actually am a recipient of the Lindsey Nelson Award uh, back in 2014, which I'm really I'm very, very proud of. Um, we're all influential people, and that's one of the reasons why I always take time when situations like the one today with you pop up and with others that are much younger than you. Um, I think it's important that we always help the next generation because those guys were making the move from radio to TV and they had to make major adjustments in the way they did it. And even though there wasn't a manual or a book on how to do it, you could just watch them and learn how to do it. You know, they really had to live it and make the changes that were necessary moving from radio to TV. 
And uh, my generation, the baby boomer generation, could pick up on that and hopefully take it to the next level. So, yeah, those were yeah. – and, and I'm, I'm big on those kinds of influences, and I write about it often. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you know how much uh, – not just the history of sports, but the history of broadcasting sports means to me. Oh, absolutely, and you're a great follow on Twitter as uh, Fox Sports' is Tim Brando, our guest here, Jason Walker Show. Um, I could keep asking questions. I don't want to take too much of your time, but um, what would you tell a younger broadcaster that's getting into the industry right now because we don't know where the industry's headed? Well, it is going to be tougher. You know, so part of what we were discussing earlier, uh, potentially, about, you know, where we have to broadcast games from, you know, this notion that, Maybe you don't always have to be on site. That's a problem, I think, for younger broadcasters because you want to establish relationships with the people you're covering, the coaches, the players. And I think to, to, get, to win the, the audience over, they need to know uh, how much you really do know and how close you are uh, to the coaches and the players that you're covering is how you win influence with your viewers. They trust you. Uh, and more and more now, there are a lot more jobs, a lot more games on TV, but we're not always doing them with the same amount of tools. And um, that that can be difficult. I think that uh, there is absolutely um, the, the 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 amount of time you spend to prepare uh, is has never been more paramount. Mm-hmm. So preparation, uh, you know, is is absolutely an even greater force for the next generation of sportscasters than it was for us, especially given the potential roadblocks that lie ahead with regard to, uh, you know, the, the physical makeup of how a broadcast is done in this day and time. Uh, I think it's also important, and I tell young people this all the time, take every job you can get your hands on. Repetition, repetition, repetition means everything. Uh, I was very fortunate to start as a child because of the, the, the good luck I had in having a father that was in the business. And, um, I grew up in a television station, basically, and he was an entertainer as well as a broadcaster and uh, started working games when I was 14 years old and quit football to do that in the ninth grade. Not many people get that much of a head start. So when you do get a chance to get on the air, no matter the level of game you're broadcasting, do it, Okay. It could be the lowest classification of high school lacrosse. Go out and do it. You know, get the reps. And um, and that's one of the good things out there for young people today is uh, whether it's through the Big Ten Network or the ACC Network or the Pac-12 Network, a lot of these games, especially for kids that are uh, dreaming about being in sports television, might be in school and young, they get an opportunity now to actually show what they can do and, and have um, – you know, the games or the, 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 the kind of inventory that's available for them to take advantage of to get on. But take every opportunity that presents itself to you and, and become, and the reason I say that is because it takes a while for any young broadcaster to become comfortable with themselves, uh, on the air. It's one thing to know how to do it, to keep up with the names and the players and the rules and the glossary of the sports you're covering. But, uh, broadcasting automatically pumps adrenaline into your veins and can raise the octave of your voice and, and bring a level of energy 
that's not necessarily natural. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, you know, you got to grow comfortable in your own skin and understand that just being who you are is all that matters. I, I see a lot of broadcasters today uh, doing poor imitations of other broadcasters, and that's not good. Uh, you want to be who you are, you know, not some homogenized version of who you want to emulate. Uh, that takes, I think, time and comfort from being on the air and getting as many reps is as humanly possible. And and by the way, it may not be a sports job to start. It may be a disc jockey's job. It might be doing the traffic or the weather. It may God only knows what your first broadcasting opportunity may be, but take it. Yep. Uh, the hands-on experience is always going to matter. And, and that's what, whether you're in school or not in school. Uh, I really mean that. Um, but, but particularly now I, I say often it's about, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the three P's, you know, uh, preparation, uh, performance and priority. Um, your priority must be that you prepare and you perform yep. and understand that the performance level is going to be enhanced by the way you prepare. Uh, and there's no substitute for that. So uh, those are things to keep in mind as you move forward as a young broadcaster. A couple final questions for you. Uh, favorite game you've ever called? Oh, wow. <sighs> I, you know, I love football and basketball equally. Uh, I think more people, have, uh, especially in your part of the country, have seen me do basketball because of the years of the NCAA tournament. Yep. Uh, and in 1998, I think was a dream year for me. I was escalating. My career was escalating at CBS. I just started hosting college football uh, on CBS at that time. I'd been doing games for them and doing the NCAA tournament in 96 and 97. But in 1998, I was paired with the great Al McGuire, who had worked with, with, with Dick Enberg and Billy Packer for so many years on NBC. And that's another guy I really looked up to a lot. You know, you mentioned Vern Lundquist. Vern because I got to work with him, uh, my admiration for him is through the roof. You know, he was never really a number one guy at a network. And, in fact, when uh, he was doing the SEC on CBS, it was because he got demoted from the NFL number two game for Dick Enberg. When Enberg came to spend the twilight of his career at CBS after having been at NBC all those years, when I got to work with Al, I'd already worked some with Billy Packer. and I'd already worked, started my career with Vital at ESPN. It was a thrill and, and, a, and a great lesson in life uh, to be with Al. Um, yeah, I mean, he has, he's a national treasure. Yeah. And, and I did learn a lot about life from uh, a guy that truly was basketball's original flower child. <laughs> he thought about things that nobody else ever thought about and made you think as a result. And uh, we had a game between Stanford and Rhode Island. The winner was going to the Final Four, so it was a regional final. And uh, you can go back and look it up. Um, Stanford came from six down with under a minute to play to beat Rhode Island on a steal by Arthur Lee and a slam dunk and one for Mark Mad Dog Madsen uh, to help put the game away. And a few minutes after that game ended, uh, we're out there and, and I'm watching Al dancing with the Stanford tree <laughs> while interviewing players. It was, uh, you know... It, I'm sure I've had greater games. I know I know I've had buzzer-beating games involving Michigan State, involving uh, 
the Butler did it again and countless others through my years of college basketball. But it was just such a dream to be with Al sure. uh, doing a game where a team was punching its ticket to the Final Four in, in San Antonio. Uh, that one all stands out, but it stands out more because of who I was with and where I was at that time in my career. You know, I'm uh, I'm 42 years old, I think, at that point, and uh, I was so thrilled to be next to him. And I felt like, gosh, after working with Al, there's no one, you know, I've worked with Raft, I've worked with Vital, I've worked with, you know, you name that guy, but, but McGuire was in the, in the very end of his career, and if I hadn't been with him then, I probably would have never had a chance to work with him. So uh, that was really, really a thrill. In football, there have been um, many, many incredible moments. And every time we go on the air, uh, whether it's at the big house in Michigan or they're jumping around to start the fourth quarter at Camp Randall in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. or I saw LSU go 90 yards in less than a uh, 50 seconds to beat Arkansas the day after Thanksgiving of 2013. Those are unbelievable moments that uh, you sort of pinch yourself and say, I can't believe I was there getting to call that game at that late, at, at that location. Um, but as far as just the best broadcast situation and most memorable, it would have to be that regional final in St. Louis with Al McGuire in 1998. That's fantastic. Uh, you've worked with some great color analysts uh, over the years. Uh, b- besides uh, Coach McGuire, who else stands out for you? Oh, Raftery is is uh, <laughs> the best of the best now. Yeah. You know, Bill is uh, Bill is seventy seven years old. He sounds and looks and acts the same way he did when he was forty seven, and I was starting out at ESPN. You know, I've I've followed Bill from uh, ESPN to. Uh, CBS to Fox, <laughs> you know, we've been doing games together for, like I said, going into our fourth decade. Uh, he just makes everybody around him better. Uh, you can make a case if you took, uh, just the best of Al, the best of Billy Packer, I don't think there's, and the enthusiasm, okay, of a Vital. If you took the, the, the three best things about those three guys, okay, the refreshing irreverence of an Al McGuire, the, you know, just unstoppable enthusiasm of a Vital, and the incredible uh, eye for something that no one else sees but you do of a Billy Packer. Put all three of those together and you got Bill Raptor. Uh, I just, uh, it's just, when, it, it's like a pilot having to, when you think about a pilot at 30,000 feet, if he suddenly has to take control of the plane himself while calling a game, sometimes announcers, play-by-play guys feel that way. Mm-hmm. But when you're with Raft, it's like <laughs> it's like uh, cruise control from start to finish. He makes everyone around him better. And I don't know that I've, uh, you'd like to think, and I've always felt like, uh, that's my that's my role. My role is to try to make everybody on the broadcast better. The sideline reporter, the producer, the director. You want to be the guy that brings the show on the air and takes the show off the air. You want to be the guy that is the difference maker uh, in terms of making everyone else around him better. When you're with Bill, you can't do that because he's already done it. 
Wow, that says a lot. Uh, love listening to to him. By the way, are the stories yeah. about some of these older analysts and, and play-by-play guys of the late nights, the all-nighters? Are all these stories true? A lot of them. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of them. Simpler times, you know, back in the eighties uh, and early nineties. You know, when you most of us. Um, are great storytellers, and when the game ends, you've got so much adrenaline flowing through your body, you can't get right to sleep. Right. So you go back to the hotel lobby bar, and and you have a couple, you know. And uh, you know, before before we had uh, uh, phones in our hands where you could take pictures and they could be sent out all over the country, uh, you know, no one had to worry about. Um, what was being said or even done, you know, right. from time to time. <laughs> so some of those, some of those stories are true. Not all, I'm sure not all of them are, but, but yeah, I, I think especially those of us that grew up, uh, in the eighties, I know when I went to Connecticut, moved in there in 1980, late 86, and we started college game day in 87, you know, those were simpler times. I mean, they were, and we were all young. We all worked really hard. I mean, really hard. Yeah in what is a pressure-packed and competitive business. So if you worked hard, you also wanted to play hard. You know, you wanted to enjoy uh, some of what you had done. Like, man, did we just do that, you know? And so if you felt good about your show, you, you certainly wanted to, to talk about it afterwards with the people you worked with. So, yeah, that's where a lot of those stories are emanating from and, and always will. And it's a... Uh, Politically correct times, uh, which began, I think, right around the uh, early 90s, you know, around around the uh, Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas yeah. uh, congressional gathering. I think that changed a lot of people's minds about the way they needed to, uh, to conduct themselves, uh, whether in the workplace, in the studio, or even on the road. But listen, if you don't have... Uh, a little bit of fun while you're doing this job, you're missing out. And I do think in most cases, it's all about building relationships. If you spend time, uh, your downtime with the people you're working with, it's only going to make you sound as though you're really enjoying being with one another when you're on the air. Absolutely. And I'm happy to say that I've never worked with anybody that I wasn't also a friend with. And uh, you do establish great relationships. And, and those relationships aren't just about what you the time spent on the air. It's about the incredible, uh, you know, kind of uh, relationship you build when you're off the air, too. Yep. Nine hour, you know, nine hour drives one way to do a football game in Eastern Oregon or, you know, somewhere in uh, nowhere, Oregon or Idaho is, uh, that's fun. You oh, know? yeah. Because you oh, should... yeah. Well, just a few years ago, in the midst of one of those incredible uh, blizzards, that was hitting the Midwest, Raft and I uh, did a game at uh, uh, Butler in, in Indianapolis, and we had to get to Iowa City, and there was a, I mean, just a, an awful uh, storm. And uh, we were stuck in Chicago for about seven hours together at the Admirals Club now, granted, uh, there's worse places to be stuck in the Admirals Club in, in Chicago, but at least we were with, with one another and we could visit, you know. And the, those stories that you share sometimes are 
you know, you develop a bunker mentality because you're on the road and you got to get from one place to the next. Now, the, the game wasn't until the following day, but, you know, you, the, those kind of travel situations that you face, and there's been many where you had to drive, yep. you know, and you were going maybe 15 miles an hour down an interstate from, uh, you know, someplace like Bloomington or, or South Bend, hoping you could get to O'Hare to reach your flight. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so moments like that you'll always uh, remember, and it's, and it's good to, to know that you, that you are doing it with friends. Well, I uh, will never forget this moment uh, chatting with you for uh, the last hour. It's been a blast. Um, appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully someday I can, uh, you know, call a game with you. That would be a, that. You know, That'd be fun. And I, awesome. I hope someday to get to Montana to meet you. That'd well, be fun. you know what? That would be great. And because uh, you've got two <laughs> states to knock off. You do what Dr. Ian Smith did. Dr. Ian Smith flew from, or he flew into South Dakota. He drove into Montana to knock out two states there. You, you, you do it all at once right there. Beautiful. Check on the Grizzlies and the Jackrabbits, right? Yeah. Do yeah. a little homework. Yeah. And, and, you know, well, I'm a Bobcat guy, so I can't root for the Grizzlies. You're a Bobcat guy. I got you. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, well, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoyed it. So that was uh, my interview with Tim uh, Tim Brando. That was fun. Uh, appreciate you guys sticking with us um, through the uh, technical difficulties. Um, we'll put the whole interview up in its entirety um, after the show, after we get done. So uh, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube or listening on Podbean, Network One Sports, Treasure Day Radio, wherever, uh, JasonWalkerShow.com, also on YouTube and uh, or on uh, Facebook and Twitter, we'll have the, the whole interview with uh, with. Tim Brando, what a great time. Tomorrow, Sean Gleason, executive, uh, chief executive officer of the PBR, will join us. So we will uh, have that tomorrow uh, as well. And uh, lots of great stuff uh, coming up tomorrow as we wrap up the week. Merrick at the Movies back next week or uh, tomorrow as well. All right, let's do On This Day in History. It is brought to you by the Motherload Sports Bar, Casino, and Restaurant. It is May the 7th. It is uh, my buddy Dave's birthday. It is my buddy Zach's birthday. And I believe it is my niece's birthday today, um, Aria. I think she's she's six days younger than, than, than Winnie. So my brother and I had, well, we didn't. Uh, we each had babies, though, like six days apart two years ago. So I think today is Aria's birthday. Okay. Uh, it is National Day of Reason. I don't know. New World Password Day. Which password? Send them to me. National uh, Roast Leg of Lamb Day. 1951, International Olympic Committee allowed Russia to participate in the 1952 Olympics. 1957, Indians pitcher Herb Score hit in the head with a line drive off uh, the bat of Gil McDougal. Now, Herb Score has an interesting story. Uh, When he was a kid, uh, when he was a kid, he was run over by a truck when he was three years old. And then later had rheumatic fever. And then he pitched six no-hitters in one season in high school. And then, of course, he got hit in the head, almost lost his eyesight, was never really quite the same pitcher. Uh, and then in 1998, long after he retired, he'd been inducted into the Broadcasters Hall of Fame the night before and was hit by a semi-truck. And he suffered massive brain, chest, and lung injuries. 
and the orbital bone around one of his eyes was fractured and three ribs in his sternum. And then he lived another 10 years. I mean, Herb Score had quite the, uh, quite the history. Uh, on this date in 1977 at the 103rd Kentucky Derby, uh, Seattle Slough would win in 202.2. In 1983, August Hoffman performed a record 29,051 consecutive sit-ups. So this is, this is my point. We were talking about this way back at the beginning of the show. May 15th, gyms and stuff can open up. And people have been whining the last two week, uh, last two months. Why can't my gym be open? Why, why can't I work out? You can't work out at home? Question mark. This guy performed over 29,050 consecutive sit-ups. You can work out at home. Happy birthdays, Johnny Unitas, born on this date in 1933. Uh, a couple of Montana birth dates today. 1901. Any guesses? An actor? Born in Helena, graduated from Gallatin High School. Gary Cooper was born on this date in 1901. Robbie Knievel was born in Butte on this date in 1962. By the way, Gary Cooper, born in Helena. Happy birthday to Purdue standout. Katie Douglas, born on this date in 1979. Met her in 2000, Thanksgiving weekend in Cancun, during a basketball tournament. Great player. Uh, Seattle Slough passed away, by the way, after... Won a race, the Derby, on this date in 1977. Seattle Slough uh, died on this date in 2002, was 18 years old. So there you go. All right, let's do uh, let's do this. We're almost at the end of the show. What did we learn? And what did he miss? Time for the walk-off. Oh, we learned a lot. We learned uh, technology is great when it works. Um, apologize for the technical difficulty uh, at the show, but thanks for sticking with us with Tim Brando. Uh, tomorrow, coming up, PBR Chief Executive Officer Sean Gleason. The PBR is going to buck this weekend in Guthrie, Oklahoma at the Lazy E Arena. Uh, this weekend and next weekend, and uh, Sean Gleason will join us. I'm going to ask him, because they're doing testing on everybody down there, how did they get the tests, and what do they say to people who say, well, how do you get the test? Sean Gleason will answer that tomorrow. Also, uh, we'll wrap up the week, Merrick at the Movies, and a whole lot more. Thanks for joining us. The whole Tim Brando interview back up on JasonWalkerShow.com and Facebook and Twitter coming up here shortly. We'll see you tomorrow. I feel like I'm forgetting something. Oh, yeah, we're going to leave you with this, because this was a great moment in New York Mets history. On this date, what, four years ago? Bartolo Colon, the pitcher. Colon looking for his first hit of the year. He drives one! Deep left field! Back goes Upton! Back near the wall! It's out of here! (laughs) Bartolo has done it! The impossible has happened! The team vacates the dugout as Bartolo takes the long trot, his first career home run, and there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. (laughs) This is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep.
The Jason Walker Show is produced by the Jason Walker Media Company. Any reuse, rebroadcast, or retransmission without the express written consent of the Jason Walker Show is strictly prohibited. Just listen, watch, and enjoy.